I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop, where it's a great pleasure to welcome back the poet Ruth Bedell, who's launched several of her poetry collections here. She's here tonight to talk about Tidings, a recently published seasonal book-length poem. You're going to read? I'm going to read from it and... And um, discuss it with Sarah Howe, who's... um, And welcome, Sarah, whose Loop of Jade was the winner of the 2015 T.S. Eliot Prize. And it's very great pleasure to have you here as well. I suspect that Ruth probably doesn't need introducing for many of you in this room. But anyway, suffice to say, she's one of my favourite poets. Um, These days teaches poetry at King's College London. In addition to Tidings, which we'll be talking about today, uh, she's the author of 10 collections of of poetry, including most recently uh, Learning to Make an Ood in Nazareth, which is a collection that tries to find hope and resilience and beauty in the often fraught political situation in the Holy Land, which is something that recurs in tidings. Uh, Also the Mara Crossing, which in its interest in migrations, both animal and human, again informs the kind of globe-spanning vision of, of tidings. And also Darwin, A Life in Poems, which is a sort of experimental biography of verse of um, Ruth's own ancestor, Charles Darwin, which shows the way that she's drawn, I think, to these larger and complex narrative architectures, which is something that I think we'll get into as well today. Many of these themes come up as well in her novel, Where the Serpent Lives. She's also the author of eight books of non-fiction, including one about rock music and Greek myth, which my um, students uh, on the Greek tragedy paper always loved. And also Tigers in Red Weather, um, a memoir about seeking tigers in their endangered settings in ancient Asian forests. And also the poem in the journey, which is a, a collection of her columns in the independent, close reading um, single poems, which actually has been a great inspiration to me. That that book, it was in many ways the inspiration for a magazine I founded called Pratt Crit, which takes a sort of similar format and approach in some ways. The format this evening, we're going to chat back and forth 
for about 40 minutes of our hour, maybe slightly less, but interspersed between our conversation, Ruth was going to read for us, um, and she's going to kick off in, in just a moment with, with the very start of Tidings. And I, I think it's so important to hear this poem, you'll, you'll be able to hear hear this when she reads um, and then we'll, we'll have 20 minutes or so for conversation. Where... Well thank you Sarah, it's, um, it's lovely to be here, it's lovely to be with Sarah. We also share a, an editor, a wonderful editor who's the only begetter of this book <laughs> and um, I'm delighted that she's here tonight and thank you all for coming on a wet night. <laughs> well it's a wetter and drizzlier and colder night at the beginning of this poem. So I'm just going to read the opening of it, then we'll talk about who's speaking and why. I am the oldest angel, the dark side of the brain. Everything untold, suppressed, unseemly or wild is under my protection. I am Karum, angel of silence. I'm the seed of fire in a hearth you thought was cold. The stillness when you step into moonlit snow and who you are in private. I appear when surface cracks, luster and veneer rub thin. Silence, you say, when you make room for wonder. I am less and less here. But tonight... For 24 strange hours in the darkness of the year, I have a voice. For this is Christmas Eve, when everything hidden comes alive. Children's toys that have rolled under a sofa or stayed in the cupboard unplayed with for years. The mice you weren't aware of in the wall. And your own unspoken longing to be given a little more by life. Suddenly, if you listen, all unnoticed things can talk. And so can I. Tonight, I play a part in everyone's secret search for something better. Come with me to St. Pancras' old church on a little London hill, ruined with 20 centuries of human stories. Nearby... Shops are closing on Camden High Street, Houston Road. The sky is that bruised colour you hardly think is sky. And sodium lights from the station terminal flicker on glass sides of the bus shelter, like a zodiac on mica. London's neon glory falls on wet purple tarmac of Royal College Street and its last-minute traffic. On roadworks, traffic cones, surveillance cameras above the door of a homeless <coughs> hostel, and the final Eurostar before the Christmas break. Below us, evening pads down Pancras Road and pokes its nose through shy, half open doors of girls tying last minute mistletoe in Goldington Crescent, Unity Muse, Penryn while young men, fresh from the gym, zip back the first ring pull of lager. Up here, evening glides over golden moss 
on the flat-top tomb of Mary Wollstonecraft, where her daughter, whom she never knew and died giving birth to, used to meet her lover, Shelley, in secret. And here's the hardy tree, where a young surveyor, not yet a writer, ordered to clear consecrated land to make the new thing, railway, fanned, dug up gravestones like slices of grey bread in a memorial wheel around a sapling ash. Now the roots look, flow and tentacle through crumbled names on lichened marble. People are trickling through the gates, up the path, around the monuments and into church, a stream of fur-trimmed anoraks and trailing scarves for the children's service. Those two figures, hurrying because they're late, are Sue and her daughter, Holly. Holly is seven. She's a pony, prancing on the firefly shimmer of LED light-bringer trainers through a thousand-year-old arch into a shrine built over a Roman altar on the bank of the river Fleet, long covered over, like the secret hopes hidden in every soul, which might flare out tonight in joy or disappointment, in a loneliness hardest to accept this time of year, or else might bear new fruit. That's why I'm here. I belong with secrets kindly kept, with possibilities, with mute. For what might a mysterious birth witnessed by distant shepherds and foreign kings, the longings conjured up by giving, gift and given, and this time-stopping rift in every schedule. Yes, what can Christmas do to all of us? Yes, so tell us, um, Ruth, why did you uh, hearken on this this intriguing narrative device of putting um, all of this into the mouth of Karun, the, the angel of, of silence, um, which is a, an interesting paradox, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Well, well, I have written a book about silence in poetry, so I suppose silence is an important thing for me, probably. Oh, yes, but silent yeah. letters of the alphabet, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. book. It sort of really began in, in deep summer in August with a friend we, one evening. We went through, we looked up lots of angel sites on the internet. And there are angels of so many things. I mean, you know, it's a mad world out there, angelology on the internet. Um, and at first, there were two angels. And when the first draft of this picture, there was another angel here. And she was a female angel. Karum is a male angel. I had Muslim friends telling me about Muslim angels. I, I collected angels for a while, but I, I liked his name, partly because it's an I am. Um, but I also liked the idea of an angel of silence. And I had this whole trope about, you know, Toy Story, the night that animals can speak and all that. And I thought, this, so he grew, the, he, he grew. The other angel was the angel of truthful communication. And I was extremely fond of her. She was a, a punk angel who told the inconvenient truth, but she just got in the way. <laughs> <laughs> and um, she was excised. 
there was too much dialogue going on and it didn't flow well enough. So, so then I thought, well, you can have him, you know, just, I mean, the more I talked in the heart of the summer in August, I love London in August when everybody's away and it's quiet. You know, it was so funny doing it in the heart of summer and thinking what an oddity Christmas is. This, particularly those 24 hours when the Eurostar doesn't work, you don't have a paper, things happen. And a friend of mine, I remember David Harsin was, you know, oh, well, it's after bloody Christmas, he said. And I thought, that's interesting. Why do people, you know, there's this rift in the year when nothing happens and you have a lovely time, but it's a very stressful time too for a lot of families. You know, let the angel of silence talk. That's, mm. Yeah. Um, I think uh, one of the interesting things about that section you read is that you have this sense of Karoom's eye view as he zooms through the streets, uh, except his uh, level is very much a human one. He's not far, far above. He's, he's noticing all the happenings in the London streets, that beautiful detail of the reflected light in the bus shelter glass panes like a Zodiac um, mm-hmm. mica. But uh, there's something of a flavour of psychogeography almost (laughs) in in Tidings, which is something I didn't expect to find in the book. It also has the feeling of you walking through London. Tell me a little bit about your writing process. Was there direct observation involved almost en plein air? Yes. um, I mean, it starts with, with St Pancras Old Church, which is I've always, ever since I've come back to live in London, I've always been mesmerised by it and... Um, it's set back and it has a fantastic history. It was, it fell into disrepair in the 13th century and it was, its altar stone is 5th century and it's one of the oldest sites of Christian worship in Britain. I thought that's so interesting. There it is, hardly noticed people. You know. Then I realised it was on the bank of the River Fleet and, you know, I used to live much closer to the heath and used to walk the dogs on the heath when my little girl was growing up, when she was a little girl. You know, so the River Fleet rises down in the heath, goes through past St Pancras and then down through King's Cross and then down through Farringdon. And um, I went on a midsummer walk for the homeless with some friends. A friend of mine is a, is a psychiatrist for the homeless in Camden. <clears throat> so we went with something called Cardboard Citizens, had a midnight walk all night. We walked all night through London. And a lot of it actually, as it happened, was through the fleet. I thought this this can stand for lots of things. I mean, it, I didn't think of it like that, but it rose up like that. You know, there are things covered over. There are there are tracks and ways and meanings that are covered over, and we don't really understand them. But we're living on them all the time. And so my editor told this to the artist, and she's got this river here, which is the the buried river. I went right down, and there was a wonderful place just below Holborn Viaduct, where you can actually, in a grating, hear the river rushing. And then there's underneath the Holborn Viaduct, there's a place where where this midnight walk stopped, where there were a lot of heroin spoons. It used to be a place where people were shooting up heroin, and a lot of people died. People hung heroin spoons for their memorial. Um, that got taken out. Robin Robin got, got into a worse place there, and he, got, he was extracted from it. So, so on the ground was this psychogeography, and I was born in London, and I, you know, I haven't written a London book, so it, it I, I don't, you know, I, I, I care about London and, and its history, and the fleet was, you know, in, in Anglo-Saxon times, it was a big estuary, and then it was tanning went into it, and all sorts of got silted up. 
But the other part of the psychogeography is, is Karun can transport Robin from East Sunrise. You get sunrise from East Australia over across, across Asia and the Middle East to, to across Bethlehem and then on to Manhattan. So it's the sort of the underworld and the overworld, really. The image of the fleet crops up again and again in the poem, almost as if the way that it surfaces periodically becomes emblematic of all the intertwining stories and lives and places that that the poem encompasses. But it also is quite a powerful figure for Robin, the character that you mentioned just now, the, the homeless man in his 40s, um, the buriedness, the hiddenness of that river um, suggests, on the one hand, his literal hiddenness in society, but it also um, suggests some of the buried pain and, and trauma that has led him to that place. Tell me, how did Robin arrive for you as a character? Well, I, I've known this friend of mine who's a psychiatrist for the homeless for a long time and some of his stories there are people living in bushes that people aren't aware of that's what he's doing in the book he's living in somebody's front garden you know there are people living on the heath there are people under flyovers extraordinary places very very hard what it's like so I had to have a fox he had to have a fox too um, because the foxes are sort of his counterpart is his median really between between the wild and the, and the tame and so everybody has a story behind how they're living. There are people on outside Kings on Holborn, and where um, you know there's some violinists. There are people in, indoors all the time. Homelessness has gone up in Camden and in Soho, 37 percent in since 2015. I mean that's incredible amount. And um, what what do we? How do we feel about it? How do we address it? We have to address it. You couldn't write a book about Christmas without that. I was wondering whether you felt at any point the sort of ethical responsibility. I know that um, for someone who could write a book like um, Buddha Nazareth, uh, the, the ethical responsibility of the poet is hardly a new question. But the difficulty of writing about a social problem and situation and circumstance like homelessness was all the research and the interviews that you did part of trying to allay a concern that you might not have a right to tell a story like Robin's, perhaps. Yeah. I don't, I don't think I'd tell his story. I hinted it. It's a huge thing because, you know, I don't think poetry has a right not to address something like homelessness. You know, we ought to be able to, able to look at and address compassionately and, and truly any, anything, particularly in this world, as it darkens and darkens at us. But appropriating is different. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to tell the story in his words. I mean, of course I wouldn't. But he's there. People like Robin are there. I've met them. I suppose I'm thinking particularly of the counterpoint, because as well as there's Holly, whom you've met, and Robin, whom you haven't met. And Holly is a little girl who's going to have a nice, safe Christmas. She desperately wants something that she's not going to get. You know, the counterpoint between the safe Christmas, which is what we think of as Christmas, and the other Christmas outside is, I think, something that's really of our world. And I suppose that, that I was thinking that that's 
what we're addressing. And in a sense, homelessness is the buried river that we don't talk about and don't see. So it, I think it has to be done very, very carefully. I mean, you know, when I do workshops and things, sometimes people want to write poems about things they care passionately about. Homelessness might be one, migration, but, but the trouble is that something that's led by the issue can, can be bad because you've got to think of the poem, poetry first. Mm. So it's a very delicate balance, but it, I think it's where I, where I try and work. Mm. Um, absolutely. I, I had thought about the way that the emotional heart of tidings is divided between these two characters, the older homeless man and the, the seven-year-old girl, as a sort of diptych. But actually, um, counterpoint is a lovely way of putting it, and of course is a, is a musical metaphor. Uh, and the way that form works in this poem does feel in many ways deeply musical. Um, tell us a little bit about the way you were thinking about rhythm and rhyme and so on in, in composing this, which, which does have a flavour often of him or carol even. Yes, that's what I was thinking of very much was carols. And, I, you know, I'm not, I wasn't born religiously. I, you know, my, my, my mother's a Darwin, a very sceptical Darwin and a biologist and a scientist. And my father's a psychoanalyst. So I had Darwin on one shoulder and Freud on the other when I was growing up. <laughs> and, um, <clears throat> but I loved singing. And so singing was my way into, into Christianity, really, at least. I was always singing, and at Oxford I sang a lot. Of course, you always do Christmas music, and you do masses and things in Latin and in English and in all the other languages, German or French. So I felt about Christmas, I feel it's carols, you know, and, the, and that's, you know, it's one of the oldest, oldest things. St. Francis was the first, first person who did nativities, um, and then the carols are about the same time as St. Francis. So the, the, the oldest music, the old, some of the oldest European music is carols. And so, and so the, you know, the sense of a carol reson, resonating, the, the, the rhythms and coming back, the, the rhymes coming back, it's much more internally rhymed and sometimes end rhymed than most mm. of my work. Um, but I enjoy doing it so much. And it gave a kind of coherence to, to the whole architecture in a way. Mm. Another thing that surfaces and, and heads underground again, a bit like the fleet, um, but sonically, um, almost subconsciously, I think, at times, especially if you're reading um, the poem silently to yourself, there, there's a, 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 um, an utterance in the poem at one point, Christmas is a wind that blows people together. Um, and I think the next section will show how the poem, whilst it adheres very closely to say the um, unity of time, it all takes space uh, takes place in the space of twenty four hours. It wildly violates um, the unity of place. It sort of trots around the globe about as much as a poem possibly could. So it doesn't say trot. It sort of sails. Sails. Yes, yeah, <laughs> no, that's right. It follows. Follows the. I mean, that's why that's another reason for Karoom, because it's very handy to have an angel, because an angel can do anything, you know. And um, and so he he gets Holly to go to sleep because she's so excited about her stocking, with a vision of of the sunrise in Eastern Australia. Because I spent a lot of time with the world map, the world map on on again on the internet, because you get this shadow. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The shadow of, of, of the night and then this sort of wing of, of sunrise moving across it from eastern Australia onwards. And so she sends um, Holly to sleep with a vision of a kangaroo hopping through the waves in the dawn um, because that's happening just as Holly's going to sleep in, in, um, in St. Pancras. And then she, then, then every now and then, Robin is walking up from Blackfriars Bridge where he thought he might throw himself in the river. And the fox is pulling him on. And every now and then he sinks down and it begins to snow. And he's up, going up White Lion Hill and then St. Paul's Churchyard. He's in all, now he's in Aldersgate. And every now and then when he sort of sinks down, um, the, the angel sends him where, a vision of where sunrise has got to on the globe. I haven't, I haven't read this bit before, so you're the first. I don't know how it will sound. As Robin sleeps in Aldersgate, the dawn creeps on. Dazzle flows across the turning globe through Southeast Asia and India to Iran. The snows of Damavand volcano redden into coral above the Caspian Sea. On Nineveh Plain, the solar azimuth is rose and lavender. And now full sunlight glows through clouds of dust from broken churches in Karakosh, Christian capital of Iraq. No Christmas under ISIL. Sunrise here lays bare the ancient citadel of Erbil and 10,000 sagging tents for refugees where, look, someone has set up in the snow a Christmas tree and creche, a candlelit life-size nativity in a blue waterproof tepee. Here in London, Robin wakes. The snow is drifting now. He's frozen and struggles to his feet. He limps after the fox like a weary king chasing a distant star, falls again in a doorway, stares through whirling flakes at the central criminal court, Old Bailey, and shuts his eyes just as the sun is coming up in the Judean mountains. 2,000 feet above the sea on Bethlehem. Let Robin dream of the small white plateau town where Christmas, whatever it means, began. The place of birth, worshipping parents and sweet smell of hay. A stable door ajar, unexpected gifts, a sudden standing star, the budding out of love the promise of everything perfect on this earth. Here's the actual place, under a winter sky of broken lace, with a cloud like a giant bird dancing on a skyline of silhouettes. The residence, the Omar Mosque, the Church of the Nativity, its gilt cross touched by hidden suns spilling <coughs> through purple cumulus. This is my night to speak, 
I have to show the truth, nothing glossed over. Here too, look, is the separation barrier. Robin knows about kept out and boxed in. The rising sun is sparkling on a hostile settlement and eight-metre-high wall of concrete watchtowers, razor wire, glinting metal, searchlights and a shoot-at-sight militia above and all around this little town. And yet, just hours ago, thousands of pilgrims from all corners of the earth pressed into Manger Square and the holiest church in Christendom to celebrate the sacrament of wine and bread, the moment of God's birth. The patriarch called on Jews, Muslims and Christians to live together equal in this holy land. I heard his prayer. May the new year be better. No barriers, bridges of peace instead. That's Bethlehem today. Spin the hourglass. What was then? I could say, the night that blessed babe was born, it was raining cats and dogs. We alarmed the shepherds, tossing our shafts of light through olive trees and pelting rain. They turned up drenched. The barn roof leaked, and the whole place stank of cattle dung, wet wool and rotting straw. Or say, no, the sky was cloudless, the air was soft and sweet, a moon like a milk-white bitten apple on the wane. Tell it how you like, it comes to the same thing. A baby, displaced parents, and their midnight visitors from opposite walks of life. Shepherds, but also kings the not-so-wise, wise men who brought rich gifts and triggered a massacre. All the children of Bethlehem and the coasts thereof. The family became refugees seeking asylum. Robin, listen closely in your sleep. This touches you, doesn't it? Christmas is children, gift-giving, persecution and lost sheep. The Christmas sun is rising like rubbed gold on hemmed in Bethlehem. But Robin is free to move. The snow has stopped. He has the freedom of the night to choose, to follow his star, his fox, into the light. I mean, I have to say that one of the big, big challenges was how far do you go over the edge? Where's the risk of sentimentality? Mm. And that was what I was, you know, fighting. Or no, one thing I was not fighting, but aware of all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I suppose that's often an accusation that's leveled against um, intertwining narratives and stories that work in this way that initially seem separate, but that uh, whether like a film like. Babel or Crash or uh, show the essential intertwinedness of human existence. Um, but sometimes that can feel a bit trite. But um, it's interesting to me that that was something that you were consciously struggling at and fighting against. Um, 
lodging in my mind at that listening uh, was this notion of having to show the truth with no glossing over, um, which I think goes deep into the politics of this poem, mm. which it wears actually quite lightly on its sleeve. These are ideas that you've thought about for probably more than a decade now um, through the Mara crossing with its various forced human migrations and relocations of peoples. But also that extract really reminded me of the poem in um, Making an Ood in Nazareth uh, with the sort of tour guide showing us um, the Bethlehem's Church of the Nativity in what it becomes apparent is the middle of a siege. Um, <laughs> so tell me, why did the refugee crisis have to be in your Christmas narrative and oh, yeah. the, what were the challenges of that? Partly because it's spilling over onto our streets. I mean, when the Syria started happening, my friend who's a, who's a, a psychiatrist said, I wonder how soon we're going to see, I'm going to see them on the streets. Refugees like arrive with trauma. They need help. You know, he's always going off to hospitals with a, with a imam in tow to, 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 you know, to address people who have jinn, who are possessed by jinns and children who are possessed by jinns and so on. Um, you know, people arrive with terrible problems and, you know, that's part of what we're surrounded with and not to see it, I feel, is denial. And for poetry not to see it is denial. And, you know, the, you know, the Eurostar is at the end, at the end of, there's Calais, and I wanted it to be, I mean, actually, before, it's interesting, you know, this, this is, when, when Harun says this is, I have to speak the truth, that's part, that's the last remnant of the other angel that, who was, um, she, she was called Bath Kol, she was the angel of, of truthful communication, and so, so he's taken over her role there. Ruth, I, I'm conscious that we're running out of time, so engrossed was I in the first part of our conversation. Could we follow on quite swiftly with the last section you were going to read, um, which uh, is very different in tone again. I, I think you'll, you'll see um, the, ra- the emotional range of this book. Yeah, this is a lot about Holly. Holly has been passionately, ever since the children's service, wanting a puppy. She's absolutely sure she's going to puppy, getting a puppy for Christmas. You know, she's planning it and all knowing all about it. And, you know, and um, she doesn't. And I wanted that too. I wanted disappointment to come in because, you know, from children, children's hopes, you know, every, from the Christmas tree and the stockings and everything, passionate wishes for some wonderful thing. And then, of course, it never matches up. And children are often so upset on Christmas Day and little children. And, and you know, you know, this idea that you don't get all that you want in life and counterpointing that with Robin and his memories of his childhood, which, which wasn't great, which weren't great. But he does meet somebody in a crisis shelter eventually who washes his hair. I, don't, I mean, I, one of the researches I did, apart from talking to people who going all through one night with my friend to different homeless shelters over Christmas and talking to the reception people there and people... There are also, also people who go and, and work in volunteer in Christmas shelters and they wash people's hair and give them manicures and they have contact, human contact, in a way they don't normally have. And um, I thought, you know, it's, it's a very strange world we're living in in which this braided stuff happens. But anyway, it's, it's, in a way, it's people can be different things to each other. 
So this is what happens. Here is Holly, who's um, at the end. This is Christmas Day. The, the snow, the lovely snow is melting. Um, everything's gone over. But Robin has decided he's agreed to go into a long-term hostel, which is a way that long-term hostels are amazing. They have pathways for people to rebuild their lives in and all sorts of things, learn skills. So he's, he's agreed to, to do that. So he's feeding his fox and saying goodbye to the fox, which is, and he's been sleeping under a shed in Holly's garden. Holly comes out into the garden and the darling diamond of afternoon alone to play in the snow, she says, really to cry at not having a puppy. Christmas is a wild ride for everyone. The light is grainy dusk. The snow is trodden, blackened, nearly gone, like everything she ever wanted. Grim twilight, murk and slush. Suddenly, by the hedge, behind the shed, she sees a stranger with grey floaty locks, like cartoon Merlin from the once and future king. He's bending down to feed a fox. Holly stares. The dream stranger moves jerkily as if on strings. The fox doesn't care. It eats a chicken wing from his fingers, throws the bone up in the air and pounces on it like a kitten. The stranger laughs. Holly doesn't breathe. What she thought immovable, a pile of withered bramble, has been rolled away. Under the shed her dad built is a hole a cavern. She takes a step. As her light-up shoes sparkle, the stranger and the fox see her and go still. Well now, listen. In the fading light, Holly sees a magician. Robin is trying to say goodbye to Fox. He has no idea I've been with him all night, but here's another vision, a figure with a tangle of gold curls and starlit feet. It might sprout wings any moment. Robin sees an angel. Who are you? I'm leaving now. Is that Fox yours? She's my friend. Robin takes the muzzle between his hands, teases the pointed ears, her eyes in his, a farewell barely spoken. Loneliness, the path of longing, not getting what you hoped for, but maybe something else, is taking flight. Flow on, flow on. I'm holding my breath, too. As the buried river moves beneath our feet, Robin is giving up all he's known. He hefts his rucksack, hesitates. Then Holly's magician passes into Shadowlands, leaving Holly and Fox alone. I'm not his fox. I'm my own fox. But I could be your friend. In a second, Holly somersaults to a world she always knew was waiting, the place where foxes talk. You'll bring me food? Yes, every day. You won't see me all the time. You'll seek me and not find. But I'm around. I'm here. Okay. Look, 
Holly's reaching out her hand, very gingerly, whose shire, a tongue, touches her skin. This is better than her dream, not a puppy, but a fox, a talking fox. The dying light is blue as a welder's flame, then violet, amber, silver, tangerine. Fox isn't necessarily talking. Holly thinks it is. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, very interesting that episode. The fox has so many literary shadings in many ways. Um, there's the ghost of tattoos there, perhaps um, an urban version of his thought fox, um, but also. Uh, an interaction maybe a little bit like a more benign version of his crow. Um, it also <laughs> reminded me of Philip Pullman um, in some ways, the, the demons that his characters have in that universe. And I think that um, occurred to me because of this uh, dreamlike character that the fox has, that it's almost an externalization of something happening within these two people. Why did it, as an animal that affects this sort of almost communion between the two main characters. Why did it have to be a fox? I don't know. I mean, I did, in an earlier book called The Soho Leopard, I did write a book about the King's Cross foxes. So I think this fox may be a, a, a descendant of those foxes. Because the urban... I did a lot of research on urban foxes. And, um, but it is this trickster figure. It's a spirit figure. It's between the wild and the tame. It's the... Um, in an earlier version, I mean, this poem was twice as long before um, before it got it it got drastically cut down and well cut down because it was just a kernel. Um, but it was it was a sort of huge muddle and Parisa. Um, well, it wasn't a huge muddle, but it was it was very very much more of it. And the fox was called lion. Because Robin was felt, thought he was Saint Jerome. In an earlier version, Robin Robin believed he was Saint Jerome, and, and Fox was his lion. But it just got too complicated having Fox and lion and things like that. And I think that is a, a part of a process of how I work. And I wish I didn't, <clears throat> but I always complicate things and complicate things, and then I have to pair them away. Mm. But that's just so. The fox is the remnant of what got paired away. Very interesting to hear um, about your process of almost sculpting the narrative. Um, of the poem. Shall we end our bit of the discussion uh, with me asking what drew you to, to this more extended narrative shape? Why did you feel the, the draw of it? It was so exciting to do. I mean, when, when I, I was suggest, suggested to me that I write on Christmas, I, first I thought, heavens. And then I thought of long poems. I looked very hard at um, Undermilk Wood, actually, and of course The Wasteland. I was thinking of long, extended things, what you can do with them. And I just thought, gosh, this is exciting um, to explore at this level. And, and, and so that's, that's how that came about. And I also wanted it, because, I think it's because of Under Milk Wood. You know, when I'm reading Under Milk Wood again, it's just an extraordinary thing. And it was written as a radio play. And so I wanted the voices. And I also just wanted it. It has got a unity of place and way because of old St. Pancras, even though it sort of wanders over the globe. Yes, yeah, so because it's sort of dream vision that the uh, other 
sections. No, you're quite right, actually. Um, I think we should open up to the floor. Do we have a mic? Hi, um, I love the modernity, the the flashing shoes of the little girl, and I, I just wondered whether you whether there was a balance about how you introduce quite modern elements into something that was quite mythical and quite magical. I think maybe it's the other way around because I'm telling a modern story and producing the um, the, the mythical into that. Um, I think I've always tried to mix those two things and always tried to see the the mythical and the universal and the ancient in you know. In a barrow, in a, in a flake of, of, of dandruff, or, or <laughs> I don't know, whatever. Um, but um, yes, yeah, so the, the I had the light bringer trainers, and then I suddenly thought, my God, Robin could see them, and you know they would look different. Um, but also that part of Holly, I was writing very much about my own my own daughter when she was you know collecting My Little Ponies and and going up. So I, there was all that was sort of at at my fingertips. You know, I also then had people who, friends of mine who live alone and say, well, you must talk about loneliness at Christmas as well. As well. So, so I think I wanted to mix as much as possible together in a truthful way. And I wonder, when you're writing a work like this, do you think about how it will sound in a performance as well as how it will read on a page, if you like? Yeah, normally I, I do read things aloud when I, when I write them as well. Because... <clears throat> um, I always tell students to do that as well. You, you can't just write a poem on a page. You've got to hear how it sounds, how it sings. Yeah. I think because part of poetics is putting things together and hearing how things sound together. Um, and um, performing poetry often helps me with the writing. You probably you too. And, you know. I mean, it can be a snare and a delusion. I know that there are poems of mine which read very well, which I don't think are as good as poems which are more difficult to read out, but actually, I think, are better poems. So it's not um, infallible, but it's sort of part of it. Um, Thank you so much, Mm. Ruth. Um, That was beautiful. Thank you you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.